Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. During times of disaster and crisis, there is one necessity that drives the team to focus, persist and achieve set goals. That necessity is effective leadership. Joining us this week to talk about leadership during times of crisis is Commissioner Shane Fitzsimmons of Resilience New South Wales. After a distinguished career with the New South Wales Rural Fire Service for over 35 years, Shane was appointed as the inaugural Commissioner for Resilience New South Wales as well as Deputy Secretary Emergency Management with Department of Premier and Cabinet on the 1st of May 2020. Throughout his career, Shane has taken on a wealth of operational and board member roles, from Assistant Commissioner with the Rural Fire Service in 1998, through to Commissioner of the New South Wales Rural Fire Service and Chair of the New South Wales Rural Fire Service Bushfire Coordinating Committee in 2007. Shane was awarded the National Medal in 1999 and the Australian Fire Service Medal in 2001. His industry reputation and highly praised work ethic has made him a well-known and inspiring industry leader. Tune in this week as Shane joins us to reflect on the disaster season across 2019 and 2020 and what he believes are the necessary skills and traits for leaders to utilise during times of crisis. Commissioner Shane Fitzsimmons, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Sam. When everyone uh, thinks of Shane Fitzsimmons, they, they, they think, you know, leadership, someone that uh, really resonates well with the people. Tell us, where, where did leadership come from with you and what does it mean to you? Well, I think like everybody, uh, leadership evolves through life and, and your lived experiences and your life experiences. Don't get me wrong, I, I did studies at TAFE or Tech and I've, I've done some uh, study through leadership programs and courses but I've had the benefit of growing up and I joined a volunteer organisation when I was 15. And, and to me, um, uh, through your school life and your child life, but when I, when I went to the volunteer organisation as a 15-year-old, um, there were so many life skills, as I reflect on it, that really were honed and, and sharpened up for me. And there's so many wonderful things about volunteers. I could talk all day, but, yeah. but one, of the other, one of the most wonderful things about volunteers is they've got this art of being able to tell you to get stuffed if they if they don't feel they're evaluated uh, if they feel they are valued uh, or incorporated into a team if their views and their opinions are being ignored uh, or they're not included so I think life skills around the basic things of of teamwork of leadership of of the art of neg- negotiation and compromise and and bringing people with you and and seeking out and understanding different views and perspectives. I think so much time in the volunteer organisation where you're relying on the goodwill of people to stay together and work together and make a difference in their community, it really, it really relies on people 
working together and getting getting the most out of each other. And I'm I'm convinced that like everybody else, our different life experiences help us evolve. You know, our leadership style and our leadership thinking. And for me, you know, whatever those fundamental driving leadership principles are that are important. You mentioned obviously at the early age you got into a volunteer service, uh, and at a very young age you were team leader as well. Yeah. You were somewhat. You describe yourself in the Australian story, but somewhat off, you know, off the rails a little bit as a teenager. Yeah. Um, how, how did how did leadership coming through, you know, the rural fire service? How did that bring you the experience to to lead? Well, it's interesting. Um, I found myself elected as the youngest captain in the brigade system in the state at that time back in the back in the late eighties. You know, I was I was nineteen uh, and I was elected the captain and. And it was interesting because a lot of the local policy structures were that you had to be 21 before you got a key to the fire station, you're allowed to drive vehicles <laughs> and all those sorts of things. And suddenly I was this captain with responsibility and legal authorities and legal indemnities and all those sorts of things. So, so and being a captain, you've got to be elected uh, by the members of the brigade. So there was something um, uh, that members uh, and colleagues saw in me uh, that, that made them... I uh, think it was okay to vote me in uh, as the brigade captain, and it's it's a responsibility that I took very seriously. And a lot of those volunteers are still some of my closest friends, you know, all these decades on. But I think one of the one of the big challenges I I faced, uh, and I think a lot of young people face going into organisations. There's a phrase I grew up with uh, in my household with my sisters and and myself, and the the phrase was manners cost you nothing, but the lack of them can cost you everything. And I think as a young person going into an organisation, if I was telling my young self all over again or a new young person today, mm-hmm. my single piece of advice would be respect your elders and exercise manners. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and if you've got respect and courtesy and civility, uh, you will find that there is so much to learn and gain from those that have laid the foundations in that organisation uh, and and to come in as a new person and think you've got to change the world and turn everything over, you can find that inadvertently you're going to come across as very disrespectful, very disruptive, um, uh, not appreciating you know history or or achievement and that sort of thing. So so for me, I think being able to uh, listen and learn uh, and hear uh, from the from the long term members, from the older generation of members. Uh, don't get me wrong, as I said on some of those stories. Uh, they were able to give you a good click around the ear, clip around the ear when you were in trouble and that sort of thing, or misbehaving. But it was learning, and and yeah. what they had to offer was quite remarkable. And being able to respect your elders and respect the views and opinions of all people that are coming to work together is really, really important. How much of a role does experience play in in creating good leaders? I think there's a I think there's absolutely a combination. So I think I think some people are quite intuitive from a very young age. I think others, um, others get a lot out of studying and reading and learning. And I think we all get a bit out of watching and observing and, and identifying mentors, whether we've got, whether we've got mentors uh, from afar or we've got mentors up close. And, and in, in all mentors and in all learnings, uh, we're seeking to learn what do we like or what, what inspires us and, and why is it? How does that work? How does it function? And we try to, to emulate that or, or do our own version of that in our own way. But I think at the same time, in all leaders, we seek to understand around, through our own experiences, 
what doesn't work for us? What don't we like in the way we're treated or the way people do things? And just making sure that we try to avoid doing that ourselves. So, so I think through, through lived experiences, through life experience, through being exposed and given opportunities, I think we all develop uh, leadership skills and our ability to interact with and understand people as much as we possibly can. Because at the end of the day, um, I think people can distill leadership down to a whole bunch of things um, but it really is about interacting with uh, and getting the most out of people. Yeah. You touched on uh, mentors and the importance of mentorship. Uh, is anyone – who's been your main mentors throughout your career? Oh, look, I've had so many so many mentors over the years. Uh, there's no doubt it starts with your family yeah. uh, and close people in family. I've had teachers. Uh, I've had uh, uh, volunteer colleagues. Some of the – when I first joined the brigade, people like the presidents and the local senior officers in the organisation – uh, coming into the place as a as a salaried officer, I've got um, uh, my father-in-law, and and he was also a an officer in the organisation. That's how I met my wife. He came in as the new uh, leader in our local area. Uh, the former commissioner uh, was was a was a mentor uh, for me uh, in the organisation. Uh, but so too a lot of our a lot of our political leaders and 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 colleagues in other uh, other organisations in the industry and elsewhere. Uh, I'm, I'm unashamedly very proud to say uh, that I take learnings uh, and, and insights from anyone I possibly can yeah. um, to, try and, to try and hone my own abilities and my own performance. And, and I, think, I think the critical thing is um, good leaders don't pretend to be anybody or something they're not. Good leaders are authentic. Mm -hmm. uh, they're authentic about themselves, about their skills, their limitations, um, uh, and the circumstances they find them in. So, so no one likes the poser or the tosser. Uh, so, so being being real, being honest, um, being able to say I don't know the answer to that, but I'll find out is really important. Knowing that you can rely on others uh, to to provide the augmentation or the additional skills and competencies that you might be light on or limited in. So, so being very self aware, I think, is really important. And I've I've never um, ever thought of myself as um, exceptionally good at anything, uh, but I try to surround myself with really good people and particularly the areas that I feel I'm not too strong on. Uh, and no matter what role I've had, uh, I've always been a leader amongst equals. So I'm no better than anybody else. Yeah. We've all got different roles to play. We've all got different functions to, uh, to serve. Um, um, but knowing that it's the individual and collective effort that's important and people already know the role you've got and they expect you to do that role very well, but they also want you to be you. They also want you to be you, yeah. the authentic yeah. individual, and they'll see through it if you're not. You touched on uh, the importance of the people you're surrounding yourself with. How important is that to have the counsel around you that um, can see things that you can't because sometimes we're too close to smell our own breath? But tell us how important that is to get a team around you that can help give you oh, guidance. It, it is fundamental and and – Anything that I've ever done um, or achieved has never been an individual pursuit. It's actually about teams. And, and I've been very fortunate uh, at all different levels and in all different roles to be part of um, some pretty remarkable teams surrounded by some really special, intelligent, uh, competent and experienced people. And, and I, I know through the 360-degree feedbacks that I get and, and, and the work that we've done over the years, people will often say... Shane can come in with an idea, um, but we can very quickly convince him why it's wrong or why it's right, and he's happy to come out the other side with a different perspective or a new strategy based on 
new learnings or insights that he wasn't actually appreciative of. So, and I think for me, it's a fundamental requirement of leadership. You, if you think you've got all the answers, you're deluded. Mm -hmm. um, uh, your ability to go in and say, look, I've got an idea, I was thinking about this, and you might have worked through a whole bunch of scenarios in your mind, but having other people around to work through different perspectives, different scenarios, and um, um, land on a better solution, uh, that's where the team effort comes into play. And in times of crisis, building that trusted relationship with your team uh, over whatever period of time really comes to the fore uh, when you've got the truncated time periods and the pressure to make decisions and take action in, in, in really tight time frames with what we call the fog of war or limited information, knowing that you're operating in that environment, using your team and relying on your team is really, really important. I'm keen to touch on the crisis management definitely um, because it's something that obviously you've led uh, through a serious crisis. Australia's some of the worst crisis we've had. But tell us about the importance of communication because leadership, uh, I mean, you have to be able to communicate. You sort of talk about interacting with people, but I mean, uh, certainly in a, in a normal time in, what, in your roles, I mean, communication, how important has that been and what's been the key to communication for you? Communication is fundamental. Um, and I think particularly in times of crisis uh, and in the fire and emergency services space, getting our communication internally and externally into plain English, de-jargonised, but humanised is really, really important. So there's no point saying, you know, if, if, if you, you know, the amount of times you've heard over the years, oh, we've attended a MVA here today, uh, there's been, a, there's been a, a number of vehicles that have collided, uh, there's a number of uh, casualties, there's occupants uh, in the vehicle, um, some are trapped, um, uh, others are suffering injuries, and unfortunately, a number of sustained injuries incompatible with life. You know, like, there, there's so many examples of that sort of narrative in the past. What's wrong with saying, um, look, our crews are attending an awful crash involving three vehicles, uh, tragically, uh, there's, you know, two people are dead. Uh, we've, got a, we've got another person trapped, which we're trying to get out of the, the scene, uh, and others have been conveyed to hospital for treatment. You know, what's wrong with, with speaking plain English and honestly? And, and in times of crisis, if we want our internal teams to come with us uh, and stand up and deal with the very difficult, um, uncertain, um, emergency times... Uh, if we want them to stand up every day, we've got to be communicating with them openly and honestly about what we know, what we don't know, what we're expecting of them. But the same thing too to our customers or the community. Um, we, want, we want people to make informed decisions. We want people to make considered decisions that go to the heart of improving the prospects of survivability, uh, of, of people surviving, but also uh, properties and infrastructure and homes. So the more we can inform people, the more we, can, the more we can, can be open with our communication about the reality of the circumstances, what we know, what we don't know, what we're expecting and why we're expecting that, what we're doing and why we're doing that, what we're not doing and why we can't or won't be doing that, but then most importantly, what do we want them to do uh, to be part of that extraordinary effort is really, really important. I think if you follow that script and you nuance that for your internal or your workforce uh, and then you also nuance that for your community uh, or those impacted and affected um, then hopefully you can get that plain English communication out and bring people with you. 
It's definitely something that you've been renowned for, especially you know during the uh, the black summer that we had. I mean, just being able to give regular updates that were simple, that were understood, and to the point. And and I think the other important thing, Sam, is when you're communicating, understanding what you're communicating about is really important. And it goes to the heart of uh, A, being authentic, so honest mm. and, and, and fair, but also respectful. Like yeah. acknowledging that there is genuine fear, anxiety, loss, um, trauma, grief, you know, understanding all those things. So it goes to the other fundamentals around leadership, around, around humility and empathy. So seeking as much as you can to genuinely and sincerely connect or relate mm. uh, to the people you're speaking with um, uh, about what's unfolding and why it's unfolding, and more importantly, where they fit in that. You know, so for the workforce, valuing, appreciating, acknowledging, praising is really important. Uh, acknowledging that what they're doing is high risk and very dangerous. But the same is said to the people uh, in the community that might not be part of the firefighting effort, but indirectly are because it's their homes, it's their property, it's their businesses, relating with the fact that they're frightened, that they're concerned. Uh, that people have already lost everything they've ever worked for. They've lost homes, they've lost businesses, they've lost livelihoods. And indeed, during the fires, they lost loved ones. You can't dehumanise that. So the more your communication can be respectful, can be empathetic, um, 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 you've got a better chance of genuinely connecting and relating uh, to that audience, whether it be the internal workforce type audience or the communities being impacted and affected. And it's certainly something that, you know, you've... Uh humanizing it i mean that's you couldn't have said any better but uh, it's obviously when anything goes wrong in in the community when there's a loss i mean you take it personally you you treat your own organization like your family but you also acknowledge uh when there's victims uh, i mean you you do take this personally and that vulnerability that you put yourself in is something that i think a lot of people admire well and 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 again i i said it during um, a number of my communiques through press conferences or other gatherings. And I generally don't mean to be insensitive or disrespectful to those that suffered so much loss. But if it wasn't for the individual and collective effort, those losses would have been dramatically higher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, loss of life, loss of, lo- loss of property, but also loss of life. Uh, and and no, matter, no matter your role, and me included, when you've got an extraordinary toll like we saw... And you've got, and you've got responsibilities, you know, for connecting with families and loved ones of those that have lost firefighters or lost the most important, important and special and um, uh, valued member of their family, and you spend the night with them confirming that their loved one's not coming home, that that resonates very deeply, um, um, and there's just no, there is no ignoring that, um, and I'll be forever grateful to the families of our firefighters and all those that I connected with during the, during the fire season, um, as difficult and as an emotionally challenging and, and draining as it was, there's something very sacred and very special about being welcomed into uh, a family's home to discuss the fact that their loved one's not coming home and we don't know all the detailed answers to the circumstances on, on what had happened, but I was able to, to visit the accident scenes where we lost firefighters and catch up with their fellow crew and then get back and spend, you know, uh, overnight with families in their home. And you're talking about having conversations with people in their, in their deepest of grieving moments uh, while they're still trying to comprehend the conversation. 
Um, it's very sacred and very special, and I'll be forever indebted uh, to the families and loved ones uh, for their willingness to, to, in, to, in, to invite me and others into their home uh, and then allow us to share in the grieving process uh, through things like funerals and memorials and, uh, and support and follow-up care to families and loved ones thereafter. Even, even only in the last week or so, um, there's something very special about getting messages and the odd phone call uh, from the wives uh, of our fallen firefighters sharing photos of how their little bubs and toddlers are growing up and you know special milestones and things like that. So, so like so many others, uh, the traumatic events of the last fire season uh, changed us forever, changed me forever. Um, um, uh, it was a most difficult time uh, emotionally, yeah. psychologically, um, but there was also something very remarkable in the face of adversity, in the face of uh, uh, so much tragedy, uh, we've seen the very best in humanity. We've seen the very best in Australian spirit uh, coming together, uniting, uh, looking out for one another. Um, uh, the generosity and the outpouring of love and compassion and care and support was quite remarkable. Um, and, and notwithstanding, uh, and, and in no way being insensitive or disrespectful to the loss and the damage, but to see, to see things like, you know, for you know, just under two and a half thousand homes destroyed in that same area, 14 and a half thousand saved, mm. as awful as 26 lives lost is, we know statistically that without the interventions of everybody, that would have been in the hundreds. Yeah. Um, um, and to see communities pulling together, neighbours helping neighbours, strangers helping each other, opening their doors, providing goods, providing their own labour uh, services to help people, and of course a remarkable generosity through donations, that's what we should hang on to because it gives us hope. It reminds us that there is so much good in people, particularly when the chips are down and we're seeing, we're seeing people, you know, having their worst days. We see communities rising up to back yeah. each other in. That's something very special. In the line of work that you've been, been in since you were 15, there's uh, inevitably there's trauma uh, events or, or observed trauma that you're going to have to deal with. Tell us, what, what's your thoughts or, or how do you feel like we're headed with regards to mental health of our first responders? I, I think the biggest, most demonstrable shift in the last few decades in my time uh, is the increasingly um, strong commitment to open, honest dialogue that it's a normal thing. Um, I remember when I first started, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd deal with something traumatic or difficult, tap on the back, have a beer, she'll be right, get ready for the next one. Um, and as I've learnt particularly, or not, I have learnt and I've reflected a lot uh, over the last 12 to 18 months, particularly the word resilience and what it means to people. It's been a word that's been used a lot this year and heading up a new agency in New South Wales, Resilience New South Wales, it's, it's paused me to think a lot about what that word means and talk to people about what they think it means. And for me, it's, it really is about how do we as individuals, as families, as businesses, as teams, as organisations, as communities, how do we ready ourselves for the next event, the disruption, the tragedy, the disaster or the emergency? We ready ourselves through sharing. We, we ready ourselves through lived experiences, through life experiences. So when we experience those disruptions or those tragedies or those, or those difficult times in life, uh, we build resilience, we build strength, so that we can endure the next big event, but more importantly, come out the other side better and stronger. 
But what my observation has also um, brought me to conclude, particularly given that there, are, there is this stigma around people getting support and assistance, resilience is about strength. It is about reflecting and living those life experiences. But we somehow conveniently overlook, particularly as men, that those lived experiences, those difficult times, those emergencies, those, those tragedies, we conveniently overlook that there is inherently a pretty significant emotional and psychological toll that's occasioned each time. Um, and we don't talk about that. We reflect sometime later, oh yeah, I went through that difficult time. But we don't do enough talking about how we're thinking and how we're feeling. We don't do it enough with each other, and dare I say it, we don't do it enough with the person we see in the mirror. So my message to everyone, particularly today, was we need to do more, individually and collectively, to normalise the conversation, all of us, but particularly men, that it's okay through difficult times, through traumatic events, through big disasters and emergencies like we've been seeing, and indeed uncertain times, uh, if you look at the last 18 months or so, with droughts, bushfires, and now COVID, it is okay to have thoughts and feelings. But more importantly, it's okay to share those conversations with others because we realise we're not alone. Mm. We're not alone in our thoughts and feelings. Uh, and the more we can normalise that and let people know they're not alone, the better chance we've got individually and collectively of recovering, of rebuilding and readying ourselves, building resilience for the next big event, the next big disruption, the next big thing that challenges us in life. And Commissioner, you've certainly obviously faced some challenges in, in the role already. I mean, we've had, uh, you've always had the fires, but the droughts uh, is broken. But I mean, the, the drought was significant. The COVID's around floods. I mean, with New South Wales Resilience, tell us about that and, and the impact that COVID and these things are having and what you're doing about them. So as a new organisation, we've been, we've been announced now for just over 10 months, 1st of May last year. Our primary focus, obviously, given, given where we were at, uh, early in 2020 uh, is recovery, 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 um, uh, principally centred around the damage and the destruction and the dislocation of so many individuals, families, businesses and communities as a result of the bushfires. But there's also, the in a lot of those communities, the compounding effects. We had people on their knees with the drought, the same people, you know, often those same people were hit with the bushfires in a very heavy way. When the rains finally broke in February, we saw widespread heavy rainfalls, storms, floods, and significant erosion. The, the denuded landscape from the drought and from the bushfires meant significant erosion, landslides, like a, a huge toll. And then of course, we've transitioned straight into COVID. And whilst a lot of focus is on the immediate relief um, and support around those impacted and, and disaffected by the bushfires, like we, we had, we had um, two and a half thousand homes, just under two and a half thousand homes destroyed. So you've got, you've got thousands and thousands of people that haven't got somewhere to live. Um, and then when we've got emergency accommodation and temporary accommodation uh, being supplied um, uh, and distributed uh, in all different forms across those affected communities, the big thing that everybody wants is for, is for people to visit and spend um, in their local communities, get those, get those tourism economies going. Because during the fires, we evacuated thousands and thousands of people. And then when we started gearing up for uh, for promoting visitation back into fire-affected communities, bloody COVID sets in massively. Uh, and uh, the other phrase I won't use is social distancing. Uh, it's about physical distancing. And the last thing we want to do exacerbate 
is more loneliness or an isolation and despair simply because people wouldn't visit and wouldn't, wouldn't connect. So being able to do a lot of virtual and online trading and connecting people from the city with the bush so they can spend money on product and materials and produce in those local areas is really important. So there's no doubt the compounding effects of COVID uh, has taken a toll on a lot of these communities, on all of us. I mean, the, the thing about COVID is most disasters are geographically limited. So the drought happens somewhere, the bushfires happen somewhere, storms or flood happen somewhere, but COVID has affected us all, whether you're in the big cities or whether you're in yeah. remote areas of Australia, indeed right around the world. So to see the compounding effects of those disasters uh, and what that means to communities has been challenging. But what we've also seen is a resolve and a resilience in communities to do their very best at building back, uh, building back and recovering better and stronger than where they were prior to the prior to the big impacts. What I would also say though is uh, recovery and rebuilding, um, um, or sorry, recovery is not just about rebuilding, it's, it's rebuilding, it's construction, it's repair, but it's also about healing, the emotional and psychological healing of individuals, of families, of business and communities is massive. Uh, so, so understanding that as individuals we are all different, so too, has has everyone's impact been from the disasters and therefore so too is everyone's journey or everyone's decision-making processes or circumstances when it comes to the recovery, repair, reconstruction and healing process coming out of the fires. So the fires lasted many weeks, many months. They lasted five or six months. But the recovery, the rebuilding and the healing will go not just for months, it'll go for years. Yeah. And, and only over the Christmas New Year period when I visited a number of areas down in southern New South Wales, marking some key, you know, anniversary milestones with considerable loss and loss of life and, and, and massive fire events. Um, emotions are still very real. They're still very raw. You've only got to talk for a few minutes with people uh, and a lot of emotions come to the surface. But what's also interesting for us in recovery uh, is that, or in resilience with the recovery, is that people are coming forward well and truly after 12 months of being affected by the fires saying that they're now ready to have a conversation about assistance. So we've got to be ready for everybody's individual circumstances and everybody's, everybody's decision-making processes and abilities um, uh, and be ready for that support and ready for that assistance. So recovery is absolutely our, 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 our primary focus uh, with our workload at the moment. But the other thing more broadly as a new agency is we are the state's lead disaster agency for preparedness and preparation um, to ready ourselves as a, as a state uh, for future disasters and disruptions, not just natural disasters, not your bushfires and your floods and storms, but all of those sorts of things, but looking at other things like critical infrastructure and planning and design and, and telecommunications, utilities, um, cyber issues, all those sorts of things uh, that, that we rely on as communities to operate and function, uh, an insurance agency as part of Premier and Cabinet to reach across government, but reach out to communities, local government, charity organisations, not-for-profit organisations, businesses, uh, industry groups, but also a very strong connection with the, uh, with the Commonwealth. And already, uh, just in recent months, the Commonwealth are going to announce a new organisation, or they have announced the standing up of a new organisation on the 1st of July, uh, which will be called something like Resilience Australia, which will start providing a national, state jurisdictional, and down-to-local government focus on how do we build resilience uh, across communities. It starts with identifying and understanding uh, what communities are vulnerable or susceptible to and how do we prioritise those. 
and then it, and then we and we seek to look at well what can we do about readying those communities or a, a, improving their ability to withstand or or, or, or seek to mitigate or prevent uh, the impact of those identified challenges. And that can be everything from no-cost, low-cost investments right through to significant infrastructure and other investments uh, ahead of impact or disasters. But in the event that it does happen, understanding how to better those communities, we can not just replace what's damaged as a result of that. So, for example, if timber bridges are burnt out during the bushfire, Historically, we put another timber bridge in because we replace it with like for like and we know it's going to burn down the next fire. So this year, for example, we've got a significant investment where all the timber bridges that are destroyed are all being replaced with concrete bridges and they're being raised a little bit to help with localised flooding. So it's actually about betterment funding. It's actually about building resilience uh, into those communities going forward. So it's a very broad remit. We're, yeah. we're, we're still in our infancy. We're still standing up the organisation. There's, there's recruitment going on but we're also making sure we maintain our focus uh, on coordinating and overseeing um, um, the unprecedented recovery effort that we've got going on in New South Wales as a result of the events of the last 18 months or two years. Commissioner, as we head to the home straight, what's the, what, what do you foresee in the future? What's, the, what's, ch what's the biggest, some of the biggest challenges that you'll be facing in the next couple of years, do you think? Oh, look, I think, I think some of the challenges are going to be, um, no doubt, um, I think it's very easy for most of us to identify when we came into COVID. You can almost draw a line in the month or so when we stepped into COVID and the whole new way of trying to work and live mm -hmm. uh, in this uncertain time. I don't think we're going to see an obvious line coming out the other side. I think, I think we, we do need to get used to the fact that, that our world has changed um, and we need to change with it. Um, but I also put my lens over that of saying a lot of hope and a lot of optimism because the way we've adapted, the way we've adjusted uh, over the last 18 months, the way we've responded to big disruptions, big disasters and the impact on communities has been pretty inspiring. And I think our challenge is how do we leverage that energy? How do we, how do we leverage that humanity uh, and, that, and that societal uh, impetus around things like innovation, adaptation, um, uh, resourcefulness and looking ahead to meaningfully do things in a different way. I think a lot of businesses and a lot of the way we operate in the last 12 months, things that we talked about changing and adapting to and adjusting with flexible work and, uh, uh, and, and innovation around technology and flexible working practices and all those sorts of things, uh, what we we're planning to do over the next five to 10 years, we've truncated down into five or 10 months. It's been a pretty remarkable effort. How do we sustain that? I think the other thing that's been really impressive for me as I get around and visit with all the challenges around the, the compounding effects of these disasters, and particularly with COVID in the last, in the last 12 months, there's been a level of, of patience and civility which has been quite pleasing and quite impressive. So our tolerance and understanding uh, of personal space, of, of being patient waiting in a queue for people to process things, of you know, understanding that uh, if we do all work together, uh, it literally does bring real benefits in the event that something happens. If we're all doing the right thing, it makes it a lot easier for people to trace and identify and, and put in interventions that don't affect everybody. If we can, so, so I think this, 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 this societal psyche of um, not just doing our part to look after ourselves, but doing our part knowing that we're making a difference for others, I think is pretty inspiring. And to, yep. and to see that over the last 18 months, I'm optimistic and I'm confident that we will see that continue uh, in the challenges ahead.
My last question, Commissioner, is uh, the importance of family. So you obviously have a, a good support network around you. Uh, how's that shaped and helped you throughout your career so far? Oh, it's it, it's fundamental. Uh, I'm, um, as my wife reminds me every now and then, I'm blessed. Um, um, a, a true story. I've, I was, I, I, I met my wife. Uh, we were we were teenagers. Her her father came in as the local fire control officer to our district, and I got to know the family. And I remember her and her, her parents reminded this the, to this day because being a volunteer firefighter and looking after a volunteer fire service. It's a 24-hour-a-day job, literally seven days a week. There's, you've got a business to run nine to five weekdays, yeah. and then volunteers do after-hours work, weeknights, weekends, because they're all holding jobs as well. So it literally is 24 hours a day, and then you get fires and other things on top of that. So, so I remember uh, when we were she, – firstly, she said no to, to going out on dates, which was pretty blunt. <laughs> uh, keeps me grounded. But then, but then I do remember with her folks – uh, she said one day, I'm never getting involved in anyone in this bloody organisation. It just takes over your life. There's no free time. There's no spare time. And, you know, in recent years, they used to remind her. Who was that young, yeah, who was yeah. that young lady that said she'd never get involved in, uh, in anyone in this organisation, finds herself being the, the wife of the commissioner? So, <laughs> look, I'm, I am genuinely um, um, appreciative and I've, I've benefited enormously from having a family that understands. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think the important thing... Um, when I walk in the door at home, um, no matter what day I'm having, it's really clear that I'm in charge of nothing, uh, and heaven help me if I try to be. <laughs> uh, the only thing that the only thing that I've got control over is stacking the dishwasher at night, and that's only because I get frustrated the way everybody else does it. Um, so <laughs> they they pick on me for my OCD tendencies. But um, life at home is really grounding, yeah. uh, and I know for uh, for myself and for others in fire and emergency services. Knowing that you've got a loving and supportive family at home is really important. But as I identified during this last fire season, I think the challenge for all of us is, if I had my time over again, um, I was leaving the house before everyone was waking up. I was at home after everyone had gone to bed and I didn't get a lot of talking time uh, with Lisa or the girls. Um, and even when I was travelling to and from the office, um, I was often ringing people to see how they were going in the field, incident controllers, volunteers, staff, whatever it was. I didn't do enough to connect at home. So they were seeing more on TV about what I was doing than what I was sharing with them. So in order for them to be loving and supportive as the workers, we've got to make sure that we're taking on that journey, that we are talking to them and letting them know yeah. how we're feeling, what the challenges of the day were, what the positives were, all those sorts of things. Mm because they want to be there to support you, it's pretty hard if we deliberately or inadvertently shut them out. What a great point. Uh, fantastic insight. Commissioner, I appreciate the time and thanks very much for joining me today. No worries, Sam. It's a pleasure. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.